Hey everybody, welcome into episode number 89 of Toe in the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It is a production of John Boy Media and it is weekly pitching talk with the five-time World Series champ, the former signing award winner David Cohn, the research ace James Smythe, and myself Justin Shackle. We have producer Dan Rourke out of Twitter jail. He's uh, out on parole. We're keeping a sharp eye on Dan Rourke throughout this episode. Uh, a quick uh, right out of the gate here, uh, uh, we apologize in advance if the audio quality isn't exactly up to par what you're used to here. David and I were on the road. I'm working on the uh, the earphones. I think it's going completely earphone free here. We're in the same hotel, David. Uh, I think you're hogging up a lot of the Wi-Fi, so just be careful there. <laughs> but um, guys, first and first and foremost here, um, as we open the show, let's get right into the opener. A little bit of a, a mini controversy, mini drama in Toronto on Monday between the Yankees and the Blue Jays. Aaron Judge absolutely crushing his second home run of the night, but uh, he was shown glancing at the Yankee dugout. The, the Blue Jays TV broadcast kind of made a big deal out of it. What's your take on Judge glancing at the dugout moments before he crushes a 462 home run? So 462 foot home run, I should say. Yes, right. I mean, that was just an unbelievable, massive blow. That, um, you know, only Aaron Judge and maybe John Carlos Stanton can hit him quite like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess if the shoe were on the other foot, so to speak, and the, you know, the situation were reversed, that you might be a little suspicious, certainly. You'd wonder, why are you peeking over at your dugout? Now, Aaron Judge's explanation was, you know, there was some chirping at the umpire going on. Aaron ended up getting thrown out of the game on arguing balls and strikes. So, so you know, certainly that's something that's plausible in my mind that that's what he was doing. Uh, he, he didn't want to be distracted by the dugout. Like that was enough after the game. He, he, he talked about that's enough. We're up six to nothing. Let's not, let's, you know, I'm batting here. Can you let me hit? So um, if you want to break it down and say, uh, okay, what's going on? If, it, if there was something nefarious going on, okay, what, what could it possibly be? Uh, it's not pitch calm. Nobody's, you know, I mean, there's, there's no sign stealing anymore. There's no fingers going down for signal calling. So, did somebody hack pitch calm all of a sudden? You know, I doubt that's the case. Uh, this Then it goes right to tipping. Is a pitcher tipping his pitches? And did Aaron Judge look at the first base coach or somebody at the end of the dugout to sort of give him a cue what was coming? You know, the, the, and that would be based on a pitcher changing his glove, moving his glove around, or some sort of tell, like a poker game. But he has a tell. Now, generally, the batter would pick that up in the box better than anybody else. You have the best view of right at the pitcher if, if the pitcher's doing something different on a slider as opposed to a fastball. So, and, you know, at Paul O'Neill always talked about this. That is such a distraction. If, if that's your plan, and right before the pitch is delivered, when the pitch does tip his pitch, you look to the dugout to get the signal and then try to pick up and focus on the release point momentarily or just a split second later, boy, that's really a high degree of difficulty to pull that off. I highly doubt that anything like that was going on, but – Nonetheless, you know, it became a story last night, and it's something that uh, obviously the Blue Jays are going to watch, and now everybody's you, you know, keyed in on watching where Aaron Judge's eyes go in his at-bats. This seems like a very silly non-controversy to me. Uh, in Toronto, in, in over the last 10 or so years, when, uh, when it was like the Joey Bats, Edwin Encarnacion, Josh Donaldson era, you know, bashing Blue Jays, there were periodically – complaints that teams would say oh they're stealing signs and looking into the windows and everything and that was similar sort of so they're going to be looking up into a window or up somewhere else and then glancing back and forth all while the pitch is about to be thrown to you this seems like um, a bit of a, a ridiculous non-story 
Now, it happened after Judge's manager, Aaron Boone, was ejected for arguing balls and strikes. There was a pitch earlier in that at-bat that was well below the knees of Judge. Uh, hey, we've been here before. It was called a ball. Uh, Aaron Boone had enough. John Schneider had issues with balls and strikes all night as well. So Boone was ejected. Aaron Judge said that players were continuing to chirp at the home plate umpire. That's why he glanced over. Look, this is where we're at with all, you know, with, with the game, with where we're at after the sign stealing drama with the Houston Astros. Is that a, uh, a, a plausible excuse from Aaron Judge? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, all you know, all of this is, I think it is. Yes, I do believe that's plausible. But nonetheless, as I said before, if if the Blue Jay hitters were peeking in their dugout before the pitch came, I think it'd be, it would raise some eyebrows and certainly some suspicions on what, why and what's going on. So it's a follow now, you know, when you're playing the Blue Jays, everybody's, everybody on the Blue Jay side is going to be watching Aaron Judge's eyes, including the Blue Jays uh, production truck who, who picked up on that. So yeah, it's something to follow. I, you know, I'm with James. It's probably a big nothing burger. But nonetheless, uh, you know, it's it's not going to go away right away. It, it's it's going to it's going to keep some eyes on Aaron Judge, at least for for this particular series as we continue on in this four game set. Now, as far as Aaron Boone last night getting thrown out of the game, I kind of sense just trying to read the tea leaves that sometimes a home plate umpire umpires have different demeanors. Obviously, it's a human element. Some of them have real rabbit ears. They hear everything. You could say one thing to an umpire from the dugout. A lot of them will let it go a little bit. A veteran guy will let it go. Okay, have your say. Don't be abusive. But I'll let you have your chirping just a little bit. But it seemed like anybody chirped on either side, Van Drock, the home plate umpire, immediately would whip off his mask and look into the dugout. So to me, it's kind of a case of a young umpire with rabbit ears. And that's what Aaron Boone really got upset about. He kind of alluded to that after the – in the post game, it's like, hey, come on, you threw me out for that. I said one thing, you know, you, these umpires today are lucky. You're lucky you didn't have Billy Martin or Earl Weaver, you know, back in the day, because that was real abuse right then. But you, you should have a little leeway to, to post an objection on the strike zone without getting thrown out of the game. It seemed like the, there was some rabbit ears and some quick hooks going on last night. Yeah. I think you even saw it early in the game uh, from with the Blue Jays dugout too. So and a fun fact about Aaron Boone's ejection, that was his 28th career ejection as a manager. That's already tied for 63rd all-time among big league managers, even though he's only 194th in games managed at 751. So he is on a, on a big pace for ejections. Two quick items from this whole thing from my end. Uh, if the Yankees were, in fact, signaling signs, maybe – discovering something with Jay Jackson tipping his pitches. Why is Aaron Judge the only hitter looking in there and maybe receiving these signs? That's one. Two, Jay Jackson could have not thrown a big, fat breaking ball right over the middle of the plate that was as juicy as any pitch we saw on Monday night at Rogers Center. And there were a lot because Alec Manoa was on the mound. We're going to get to that later on in this podcast. But let's move on, gentlemen. Um, there are two teams atop their respective divisions both in the uh, eastern divisions the rays in the al east the braves in the nl east both have some concerning injuries to their pitching staff so i'm wondering which first place teams pitching injuries are more concerning atlantis or tampa bays well you know 
this is some this is a conversation that, that, that James and I and I have had over the years in terms of uh starting rotation, depth, the use of the bullpen, everything. One thing leads to another, but I gotta go with the race just because of how well that the Springs was pitching. He was on top of his game. You, you could see it coming over the last couple of years and Rasmussen as well. So when you lose Springs and Rasmussen, and then on top of that, back to spring training, remember Shane Baz is out too, a young number former number one draft pick that they were high on as well as a starting pitcher. So really that's three, that's three starters they've lost, but two that were on top of their game that we don't know. We know Springs is out for the year and probably on into next year as well. And Rasmussen, all of a sudden he throws seven shutout innings and immediately goes on the 60 day IL. That was just alarming to me. It's like, this guy looked fantastic shutting out the Yankees for seven innings. And then all of a sudden after the game, you hear, Oh, it's 60 day deal the next day. So to me, that's really concerning, especially how good he is. You know, you're talking about Rasmussen was was the top five pitchers in the American League going right now, the way he was throwing the ball. And Springs as well was what was up there, I think, top ten with the way he was throwing the ball as well. So that's a huge blow for the Rays in my mind. They probably will get Glass now back at some point. But he also left his recent rehab start with tightness in his side coming back from an oblique injury. So, you know, the hits keep coming for the Rays right now. And the, the story's been their offense – swinging a bad hit and home runs, but at some point you keep losing starters like that. It's a serious red flag. I think it is the Rays. They've been able to get by without glass now, and they've been playing amazing ball, but Rasmussen dropping that. This is just a compounding factor. Are we starting to see some cracks in the bullpen? It's a little more of a red flag for a team like Tampa Bay. That's so reliant on the relief core. And Another thing that's a little uh, a little backwards, but I'm more confident in the Braves' offense to paper over any pitching troubles than I am in the race to sustain this kind of uh, hitting streak that they're on. So I'm going to go with uh, Tampa Bay there. It's, it's big that they get Pete Fairbanks uh, back off the injured list to, to bolster the bullpen. And like Coney said, Glass now should be coming back. But I, I think I'm a little more concerned about the Rays pitching injuries right now. Yeah, they do get Pete Fairbanks back. The, the bullpen hasn't been as solid uh, as it has in recent memory, and it's wild because you see this historic start. But Fairbanks' return allows Jason Adam to kind of morph back into that setup role. But the Braves, I mean, we talked about it last week with Max Fried going on the IL. Now they lose Kyle Wright. He automatically goes to the 60-day IL as well. But you have... Charlie Morton, Spencer Strider, Bryce Elder, they're all really performing as the, the the pitchers that are still anchoring that rotation. So I have more faith in the Braves rotation there. I have more faith in their bullpen as well. They just got Rysel Iglesias back. I know he hasn't gotten off to the best start, but goes back to the divisions too, right, guys? Like the overall depth of the NL East uh, doesn't look like it's going to be what we thought it could be at the outset of this season. And – I think they have enough to uh, stay ahead of the pack in the Braves. The Rays, I don't think they're in tr- excuse me, I don't think they're in trouble, so to speak. But uh, I think they're definitely more vulnerable with their injuries. Rasmussen going down was a big gut punch. Um, moving o- over to the West, uh, the National League West, a lot of fun. It's definitely more competitive, but I think the Dodgers are still showing that they're the considered like the class of this division, and maybe the class. Of the National League. They've won six straight at the time we're recording this year. Offense is mashing. The starting rotation has looked really strong. Can the Dodgers rotation 
sustain their current rate of success? Uh, the short answer is yes, in my mind. Clayton Kershaw on top of his game, he's the leader of that staff, has been maybe the the best starting pitcher of his generation. You look at his numbers. You want to go down a rabbit hole, look at Clayton Kershaw's career numbers. Just unreal. His career ERA right at the top. Uh, just remarkable, especially when you think of the sample size of work that he has. The Dodgers collectively as an organization are the envy of the industry. And it's two ways, the way they develop pitching. If they need somebody, they can go down in the minor leagues and bring them up. Now, Dustin May probably is the most recent example of that. After fully back from his Tommy John surgery, he looks legitimate like a frontline starter right behind Kershaw. There's more in the pipeline on the Dodger side, too. You think about Bobby Miller we haven't seen yet is a top prospect that could be on the way. We've seen Gavin Stone already, and he kind of acquitted himself fairly well, even though he gave it up a little bit in, in his, his recent start. Uh, he, he still showed a lot of promise with a really plus changeup that, that he features. So, uh, you know, I, I believe the Dodgers on the offensive side, they're still doing what they always do have done, the collectively an approach where they walk a lot. They're very selective. Their walk rate is always up. And the strikeout rate is kind of kind of low. I mean, they really have sort of this developmental mindset on the offense and the, and the pitching side that that just pays dividends for them, and they keep refreshing, hit the hit the reboot button, and the Dodgers. Oh yeah, this is going to be the year they fall off. I know it isn't. <laughs> They're right there, where, you know, right there, and very formidable, like they always have been, and like they've been, especially over the last ten years. Even if this is a sort of a reset season. We talked about this uh, before the year and in spring training. The Dodgers are the Dodgers. They are a default powerhouse until further notice. So if they they keep winning games. The rotation's been fantastic. Julio Urias, three six one ERA. That's actually that's actually fourth out of the out of the five guys that are that are in there now. Kershaw is still at the top of his game. Dustin May off to a fantastic start. Tony Gonsolin's back and he's pitched well in four starts. Noah Syndergaard. Uh, bringing up the rear as the five starter, but maybe they can get him uh, straightened out. But it does seem sustainable. They these these are mostly reliable guys uh, in the big picture. So I don't see why they they can't be one of the the better rotations uh, moving along. And uh, Coney, you don't have to twist my arm to talk about the greatness of Clayton Kershaw. He has a two four eight career ERA, and if you look at adjusted ERA or ERA plus, which compares you to the league average and adjust for ballpark. His career ERA plus is 157. That is That means he's been 57% better uh, than the league over his career. That's the best for any pitcher who's pitched 2,000 innings in the major leagues, one of the all-time greats. And even though he's not a you know, 180, 200-inning guy anymore, there's kind of this thinking that, oh, he's, you know, he's on the downturn or whatever. But he has a 2.36 ERA this year. And if you look at the last, say, few seasons where uh, starting in, say, 2018 when he first started to get some injuries, well, since then, he has a 2.79 ERA over the last six seasons. So he's still going strong, even if he's going year to year with the Dodgers now, but he's still anchoring a, a powerhouse Dodger rotation. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's funny, James, because you mentioned the, the pitcher with the fourth lowest ERA in that rotation being Julio Arias. That's the guy I think I have the most faith in over the long haul of this season. Um, Tony Gonsolin is, is proving that all you need to wonder is whether he'll be healthy when he's on the mound. He looks like he's going to be producing. Uh, can he stay healthy? Can Kershaw stay healthy? I love Clayton Kershaw, but the question always has to be there. Uh, how many innings is Dustin May going to be able to throw in his first full year back from, from Tommy John surgery? So, like, the one pitcher that I don't have any questions with is Arias. And, again, there are force until they aren't. I'm a true believer in that. I think the rotation is a strength. But I also think that they're going to be adding to that rotation via trade at some point. So we'll keep an eye out there with the Dodgers. All right, more Toe in the Slab is coming up. But for all the men out there, I need to tell you about a way you could step up your skincare. And that is something that the earlier you start, the easier it is to maintain. And Caldera Lab is here to help you raise the bar with your skincare. This company creates high-performance men's skincare products by combining pharmaceutical-grade science along with nature's purest and most potent ingredients. You want to go the all-natural route, believe me. Caldera Lab is backed by a leading clinical trial where 9 out of 10 men experienced healthier and visible improved skin. Caldera Lab has tools to unlock your best first impression and confidence. One of the main things that the females notice first is a man's skin. The Regimen Bundle from Caldera Lab a twice-a-day routine to transform your skin. Inside this bundle, you're going to find a clean slate. It's a balancing cleanser that uses gentle plant-based cleansing. The moisturizer is called the base layer. It's a nutrient defense fortifying moisturizer, huge on hydration for the skin. And then the good, their go-to at night before bed and a clinically proven multifunctional scrum that helps your skin look tighter and smoother as well as to help reduce visibility of wrinkles and fine lines, talking about the creases uh, underneath your nose, the crow's feet by your eyes, the wrinkles on your forehead. You want to take your skin game to the next level. You could do it with Caldera Lab. Look no further than the icon as well. It's the serum for your eyes. It is here to address the, the three most common skin concerns around the eyes, like we mentioned, the, the crow's feet, the fine lines, and also you want to eliminate those bags, the dark circles, the puffiness underneath your eyes. We have a great code for you. It is SLAB. And if you enter that at calderalab.com, you will get 20% off your order. That is 20% off at calderalab.com by using code SLAB. Unlock your youthful glow and be ready for summer with Caldera Lab. Moving back east, Toronto. Alec Manoa was at the front of this rotation. And before the season started, I think we named every other Blue Jays starter needing to step up in order for the Blue Jays to take that step forward and potentially come away with the ALE's crown. But here we have Alec Manoa really struggling out of the gate on Monday against the Yankees. Those struggles reached another level. You walked the career high seven batters. What is going on with Alec Manoa in Toronto? Well, just, just watching him pitch last night, there were some red flags for me in body language. He threw a couple of sliders where he kind of wheeled around and showed his back to the catcher before he got the ball back as if, you know, he's not happy or something's going on with, with Alec Manoa. And when you look under the hood, his slider has diminished over the years. He used to be one of the best even two years ago, and he's still a young pitcher. But two years ago, he had uh, 
I think over 15 and a half inches of horizontal movement on that slider, kind of a sweeper, really good shape pitch in a pitch design, uh, you know, uh, way of speaking. Uh, it's gone down to like 12 and a half inches. He's lost almost three full three inches of horizontal movement on that slider. Now, what comes with that is a little loss in spin rate, a little loss in the sharpness of the break and command overall. A lot of times he'd hang it. He wouldn't finish it last night. And then he'd throw one and he'd miss down and away. So the first thing that goes is the control with any of your pitches. And with Manoa, his slider's his best pitch, especially against right-handed batters. Uh, the command's off. The break is off. The spin's a little down. The sharpness is a little down. Real red flag for me. I'm wondering if he's nursing something. Is he okay? I don't know. It's, it's purely speculative on my mind. But that's the first red flag that you look for somebody, especially who's got a really sharp breaking slider that his signature pitch isn't quite the same. And, you know, what's going on with it and how's he feeling? Well, we don't know, but it's such a red flag when you have a guy who's a great pitcher for his first two big league seasons. And to have this kind of decline is really jarring. And you just start off with the walk rate. It's doubled from his first two seasons. It was around 7%, better than league average. Now it's 15%. And we, we saw the seven walks on Monday night, the slider, one of the, one of the better pitches and it's been getting hammered. So he's been losing location and walking guys, but even when it's around the plate, it's getting tattooed a 368 average and 737 slugging percentage against the slider for Manoa. This is not the guy we we're used to seeing. Guys, are, are we at the point in this division where the individual blips from certain players, like could mean, everything for a chance at a division title for these teams. Like each team obviously has flaws and that includes the Rays. We were going over them uh, moments before with their, their rotation injuries. Someone obviously has to win the AL East, but like how much are the flaws magnified on the individual players and who are struggling with these reduced head to head matchups? Yeah. Everybody's got issues, right? We all tend to, you know, if you're in each individual fan base tends to focus in on your own individual problems and in, in, in the big view to your point, Jack, it's a great point is that the schedule's different this year. These games mean more interdivision four game series in Toronto means a little bit more in May than it did last May, because you're not going to see these guys as much obviously this year. And it also puts more emphasis on the next series for the Yankees going down to Cincinnati taking advantage of the second division clubs so far. So good with the Yankees as they start this, this swing of their schedule, you know, they swept the A's. You know, obviously these games are important with the blue Jays. What happens in Cincinnati over the weekend? Can they make hay down there? That's how the Rays built their lead. I think James has showed us some numbers, but their record against those second division or well below 500 teams is just incredible. That's, that's how they got to 20 games over 500 they were almost 20 games over 500 against those teams, I think. They've 16, 17, or 18 games over 500. The Rays played against teams like Oakland and, and uh, the, the second division team. So, yeah, the, the schedule means something this year. It's the first year we've had it. So it, it's it's something that where you could see most of the wildcard teams come out of the American League East this year with the expanded playoff format. So I'm watching that as well. Yankee fans, oh, the Yankees were in last place. Yeah, but they were half game out of the last wild card, too. So you have to really take a look at the big picture here and how many teams the American League East is going to get uh, in, in terms of, of playoff pitcher. Well, the Rays 
have gotten uh, gotten fat on some of the uh, the, the dregs of the league. Um, 14 and two combined record against the White Sox, Reds, Rockies, Royals, A's, and Nats. Some of the team, the Red Sox hadn't even played any of them yet. The Yankees only had the three games recently against Oakland. So a lot of that's going to shake out. The AL East is such a grinder. It's the, you look at the record that the teams have head to head. Everyone's kind of beating up on each other in, in the head to head division records. But you look at how some of these teams are doing outside the AL East. The Rays are 21 and four. The Orioles are 20 and nine. The combined record for the five American League East teams against teams that are outside the division is 93 and 48 as of uh, when we're recording this on Tuesday. That's a 660 winning percentage that comes out to 107 wins per 162 games. So these teams are crushing the rest of the competition. But within the AL East, it's it's so tight. And with the schedule, you're going from one head-to-head game is one out of 19 over the last you know 20 years or so. Now you're down to 13 head-to-head games. And so that's each individual game is carrying about 50% more impact in your division race. Hands down, the AL East pound for pound is the best division so far here in 2023. No question about it. Um, we all saw this uh, this fastball from Aroldis Chapman of the Kansas City Royals within the last week. Triple digits had insane movement up and away against a right-handed hitter. Chapman has not allowed a home run at the time we're recording this. And Aroldis Chapman's also pitching in one of the weakest divisions in baseball in the AL Central. Now, uh, the Kansas City Royals, they are not going anywhere, but as we get Deeper into the season, again, now reaching the midpoint of May. Guys, how much longer should the Royals wait before they trade Aroldis Chapman? Well, I think that they should have traded him after opening day when he was throwing 104. <laughs> but as we know, a lot of times if team you see this, if teams are struggling, oh, they got to make a trade, they got to make a trade. Well, teams aren't really, this isn't really on the radar in, in mid-May at this time. So when do you guys think is the is the earliest that, that that really starts to happen early June, mid June. Yeah. The art of the deal, right? You have an asset, you know, you're going to trade him. Uh, how do you get, how do you maximize that leverage? You get more teams involved in the bidding process, right? It's, it's classic supply and demand. It's classic uh, art of the deal. It's going to be interesting to follow, but the one caveat to your point, Jack, and to your point, James, especially was we know as Yankee fans, we've seen the world as Chapman blow up. We know that, you know, we've seen it overnight. And so uh, the longer you wait, you know, what happens? You know, what happens if he does? If there's an injury, he's a little older now. Does he break down? Does he start to lose the command and the radar again all of a sudden and go into a bit of a funk and diminish his value? So, yeah, it is an interesting case study in terms of when's the right time to pull the plug because there's no doubt the Royals are – they signed him for leverage. They signed him with this in mind that they could get some significant pieces – in a trade to a team that's in the playoff hunt. Uh, that's, that's an interesting follow now, especially where the Royals are in the standings. You know, there, there's no need for, you know, a closer that throws 104 miles an hour. That's a veteran at this point in, in their development or in, in their arc of where they're going to be as an organization. And look, this is why they signed Aroldis Chapman as a free agent. They were, if he was doing well, they were going to unload him in a trade. And I would err on the side of caution for the reasons you were talking about, David. We know this movie here. Uh, even though he's looking great, 
in a low-stakes environment in Kansas City, pitching in the AL Central. I think uh, if there's that first desperate team, again, art of the deal, the first desperate team that comes along, I'd sell high on our oldest Chapman at this point. And uh, I think this brings us to our Yankee chat. So a former Yankee blending in right now. Uh, the Yankees have some issues in the bullpen, but in their starting rotation, a potential red flag. And it's someone who we would not expect to have a red flag from based on what we've seen the last couple of seasons. Nestor Cortez, over his last few starts, didn't sound like he was completely in love with his fastball command. There were signs that were pretty evident in certain outings versus others. And he really looked like he hit a dead end the third time through the Rays lineup in his most recent start. Gentlemen, does Nestor Cortez's recent issues concern you? Well, you kind of hit the nail on the head, uh, you know, that it's that third time through the order. The fifth inning has really kind of uh, come back to haunt Nestor in, man, a lot, in a lot of his starts. I think his ERA in the fifth inning is well over 12. And uh, some of the most of the damage has been done then. It's kind of like he's cruising along, maybe a little first inning hiccup here and there in some of his starts. But then the middle innings have been pretty solid, the second, third, and fourth innings. And then all of a sudden – he comes on. Unra- he comes unraveled, or so you know. Things start to steam steamroll on him in the fifth inning, and that's a familiar thing for me. I know when years that I struggled, it was always that one bad sequence, that one bad inning that got me. It's usually in the middle innings, the fourth, fifth, or sixth innings, and that's what's happened to Nestor. And I think, you know, when you look at Nestor and you look under the hood, yeah, you know, there's nothing really glaring overall. Like we said with Alec Manoa, like oh no, his cutter's not cutting as much, or the the quality of a significant of one of his significant pitches has dropped off, but I think overall he's throwing less strikes. You know, in 2022 last year, he threw over two to one strikes to balls. This year it's down to 1.7. Now that doesn't sound significant, but that leads to, you know what, they're not chasing as much. So I have to throw more four seam fastballs or I'm falling behind a, a little bit more and become a little bit more predictable. And, and that's kind of playing out too. If you look at, the outside the zone chase rate on Nestor Cortez's pitches, that's down about seven percentage points year over year from 22 to 23. So it's sort of one thing leads to another. I'm not throwing as many strikes. They're not chasing as much. Is there any one pitch that's the culprit? I'm not sure it is. You know, the, the quality of his cutter still looks good at times. His sweeping slider still looks decent at times compared to years past in terms of the, the movement profile. But overall, less strikes, a little more predictable. And the league's kind of figuring him out a little bit, kind of adjusting to Nestor Cortez now. And I really believe that he could benefit from something that moves the opposite direction, a changeup, a fading changeup that he's shown at times. He only throws it about 3% of the time. He threw it a little over 4.5% of the time last year. I know it's hard to kind of throw a pitch that's your fourth best pitch, but that you know if he can bring that along and show it at times, that might take some pressure off of him terms of that cut fastball and everything he throws from a left-handed batter moves left to right. You know, the four-seamer has some ride. His cutter moves left to right. His sweeper moves left to right. Something moving the other way. Something moving right to left would really benefit him. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how he gets there, you know, unless he just keeps trying to throw that changeup, trying to get it to fade to right-handed batters. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. 
his two worst starts as a Yankee have been in his last three, seven runs against the Rangers, six runs against the Rays. These are two of the highest scoring offenses in the major leagues, by the way. But uh, Coney mentioned some of the uh, the times through the order stuff that, you know, didn't really uh, rear its head that much for him in, in, in uh, these last couple of years. But if you look at the average first, second, third time through the order, 185 to 242 to 455 slugging 246 to 349 to 1121. That's a slug, not an OPS. But at the same time, there are some red flags, but also some reason for to, to, to temper the panic. Um, Coney, the chase rate, um, you're spot on there because last year he was in the top 35% of the league in getting batters to swing at pitches outside the zone. And so far this year, he's in the bottom 15% of the league. But if you look at his four-seam fastball, the average is jumped up. The opponent average is up from 157 last year to 253 this year. And the slugging is up about over 150 points. But the expected batting average and expected slug that you get from StackCast is pretty much in line with last year. So it kind of makes you think that maybe there's just been some unfortunate contact and some, some extra balls falling in or what have you there. So I think it's, it is a little cause for concern because he's just been so consistently great for the last you know two seasons, but just, I think it's a little, uh, it's something to monitor, but not necessarily panic about right now. It's sort of like a hitter, you know, hitters, we talk about ground ball rates. You know, Jordan Walker with the Cardinals got sent down because his ground ball rate was too high. Uh, you know, it's the same for a pitcher. You know, you just do the inverse for pitchers and ground ball rate and fly ball rate. Nestor's fly ball rate's about 10% up this year. And the home runs per fly ball, which can have a random variance to it as well, is up too. Well, about you know, one and a half percent in terms of the percentage of fly balls leaving the ballpark. But the question is, is he given more actions in the air against Nestor this year so far in his first eight starts and by about 10%. And that, you know, I, that may tend to level out over the course of a season, but <clears throat> that's something you look at right away. It's like, oh, they're, they're laying off of the cutter in, they're squaring up some four seamers, and they're hitting in the air more, and they're leaving the ballpark more. So that that's that's uh, something to follow with Nestor moving forward. And there might be something to this with uh, just his story, his breakout over the last couple of years has been so great to see. But does that also – kind of lend itself is there a little more panic than you might see from a Garrett Cole or something if that was happening with him right it, I you know we we think that what we're seeing from Esther Cortez obviously is real over the last two years but is like you know is the is the coach turner back into a pumpkin I think that's on the mind of of all Yankee fans here one thing that is on my mind guys is is the carryover effect Nestor Cortez threw a career high in innings last year. I guess it kind of takes me back to Alec Manoa as well. He approached 200 innings last year. And when you cannot see the, I guess, the visible carryover effects in things like velocity and Nestor Cortez is saying he's feeling fine, he's feeling strong, can the carryover effect still be a thing despite Cortez himself saying, no, I feel fine? No, it's a valid point, you know, and also, you know, he's had some hamstring issues. He had a, a, he was behind the eight ball in spring training a little bit in terms of his buildup and his endurance. So maybe he's not quite all the way built up like he was last year. Maybe that's why the fourth and the fifth innings, a lot of the damage is coming that third time through the order. Maybe it's because he's not quite all the way back physically 
compared to last year or the year before because of his lower half and his legs and, you know, what happened in spring training, a little bit of a hamstring issue last year as well. So maybe his legs aren't quite under him in terms of endurance. Uh, and that could come maybe, maybe moving forward that will get better, you know, as, as he, as he gets stronger, but yeah, it's, it's that one bad inning. That one bad inning for Nestor usually comes about the fourth or the fifth inning this year. And uh, it's something to follow. All right, moving on to another piece of the Yankees rotation, one that it seems like the Yankees are going to be getting back relatively soon. Luis Severino is on a rehab assignment right now. Aaron Boone wouldn't completely tip his hand in saying that Luis Severino was going to be coming off the IL and making his season debut on Sunday. But it's certainly in play. Severino could be on the mound this Sunday against the Reds in Cincinnati. But through all of this rehab process, through this stint on the injured list for Luis Severino, feels like there's some back and forth tension between he and the organization in terms of what their vision is for him, their plan to get him rolling. Severino feels like, hey, I don't need these rehab assignments. I can throw uh, the, the amount of the allotment of pitches that, that I'm throwing here in the majors. I'm ready to go. Uh, history would say he might not know what's best for himself. A pitcher is going to say, hey, I know my body better than others. It's interesting there. I don't know if Severino deserves the benefit of the doubt with his injury history. That may be another thing, but it uh, seems like it's getting chippy between the Yankees and Luis Severino. So, like, what's the future look like between the team and the pitcher as he is in his free agent year? Yeah, very valid points all across the board. This has been building, right? It really is like the last couple of years when he's coming off the IL, he's complained about being slow played. You know, and the Yankees kind of set him up for the playoffs last year and slow played him, and he was not happy about it. And I love that about Severino. I mean, he's a gamer. He wants to be out there. Nobody more disappointed in his injuries than he is in, in himself. But um, you, that's what you want. You want that that fire and brimstone attitude from your starting pitchers that they want to be out there. They don't want to waste bullets in the minor leagues. But on the Yankee side, obviously, you know, they, they have more information. They're privy to to the medicals, to the data, the medical data behind the scenes. So, you know, they, they have a plan, and they, they're obviously going to err on the side of caution when you have an injury history like Severino. But this isn't just this year. This has been going on in the last two or three years with Severino and him battling with the training staff and getting slow played uh, in his mind. And I love that. I don't have a problem with that at all. But he, he obviously is a free agent after this year, and it is interesting to follow for the Yankees. And he's he can't, with all that being said – he, he has made sure to say, I love playing for the Yankees. Don't, and this isn't about that. But, yes, I'm, I'm frustrated with the trainer staff. They're slow playing me. And then this is nothing new. This has become an annual thing between Luis Severino and the, the Yankees training staff. Always nice to err on the side of caution. You love Severino's fight and, and energy on the field and that the fact that he's, he wants to compete and get out there uh, right out of the gate here. But it's not about – Sunday or, the, or this past week or whatever. It's, it's about getting him through the rest of the season unscathed, which if he comes out on Sunday morning in Cincinnati and stays healthy the rest of the year, he can make 18, 20 starts. And that's plenty for a guy with, with his quality. So here's a guy with a, a 310 ERA since 2017. He was one of the best pitchers in the American league in 17 and 18, when he was actually, you know, pitching full seasons, then the injuries hit. And even last year, he pitched 100 innings, and with his quality, that's 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 going to be very valuable. And if he can give something like that in another, you know, 20 starts or so, or 16, 18 starts uh, down the stretch, and hopefully for the Yankees into the postseason, that's going to be plenty. 
but you know why Severino wants to get out there and put up uh, big numbers in his platform season going into free agency. The one thing that you you gain from this side in, in you know watching Luis Severino on the mound, talking to him behind the scenes, his desire to be great is such an admirable trait. And yeah, all players want to be great, but just the way he carries himself, the way he talks about it, um, something that I, I really do admire with Luis Severino. And I could see it from both sides. I understand where the Yankees training staff is coming from. I also understand Severino's side. Again, that that will to succeed, the desire to be great. Obviously, it's probably amplified in a contract year. So uh, something to monitor for sure. But I think the Yankees have his best interest in mind for sure, as they just want him healthy and available and effective for the month of October. All right, guys, that's going to wrap it up here. Uh, Sunday Night Baseball, David, where are you at this weekend? Uh, back in New York at the Mets, City Field. They're going to be the Guardians, Cleveland Guardians against the Mets. We're hoping for a big pitching matchup, maybe Verlander and Bieber. We were hoping for, you know, that all indications are that that's a potential matchup and love it, you know. It'd be great for the tone for our podcast, Towing the Slab. You know, we'll, we'll talk about a great pitching matchup and love watching those guys pitch. The great Verlander, one of the best of his generation. Shane Bieber, a real craftsman, you know, not a 98-mile-an-hour guy, but a real pitcher and breaking ball artist and fun to watch. He really hits his spots and sets up hitters very well. All right, David, we'll see you the rest of the week in Toronto and on Sunday Night Baseball. James, keep crushing it. Uh, that one sheet is coming in handy here these last couple of series, man. Appreciate you uh, on the S broadcast doing the great research you do. Uh, thank you all for tuning in here. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel if you're already not doing so. That way you don't miss the latest uh, extra content that we're putting out, plus the full episodes on the YouTube channel as well. So for David, for James, and for our great producer, Dan Rourke, this is Justin Shackle. We will talk to you next week on Tone of the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boyd Media. Take care, everybody.